Chapter 14 of The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury by Julia Cartwright. Chapter 14 The Martyr's Shrine. Erasmus has described the imposing effect of the great cathedral church on the stranger who entered its doors for the first time and saw the nave in all its spacious majesty. The vision which broke upon the eyes of those pilgrims who, like himself and Dean Collett, visited Canterbury in the early years of the sixteenth century, may well have filled all hearts with wonder for then the work was well-nigh perfected. The long roll of master-builders, from Prior Wibelt and De Estria to Chillenden and Selling, had faithfully accomplished their task. Prior Goldstone, the last but one who reigned before the dissolution, had just completed the central tower, the great labour of his predecessor Prior Selling's life and was in the act of building the noble perpendicular gateway which forms a fitting entrance to the precincts. And now the great church stood complete, without a very goodly, strong and beautiful structure. The traceries and mouldings of the windows, the stone canopies and sculptured images of the portal, all perfect. The glorious towers in their might, Bell Harry Steeple, as we see it today, matchless in its strength and beauty, and beside it, rivalling its grace and majesty, the ancient Norman Tower, which bore the name of Ethelbert, crowned with the Arundel Spire. Within, a richness and splendour to which our eyes are wholly unaccustomed, chapels and chantries lining the great nave, fresh from prior Chillenden's work. Altars glittering with lighted tapers and gold and silver ornaments, roof and walls bright with painting and gilding, or decked with silken tapestry hangings, carved images covered with pearls and gems, stained windows throwing their hues of ruby and sapphire across the floor, and lighting up the clouds of incense as they rose heavenward. All this, and much more, met the pilgrims' wondering eyes. No wonder they stood half amazed, as the supplementary tale to Chaucer's pilgrimage describes the gardener and the miller and the other lewd sets, gazing up at the painted windows and forgetting to move on with the crowd. Then the show began. First of all, the pilgrims were led up a vaulted passage and many steps to the transept of the martyrdom, where the wooden altar, at the foot of which the saint fell, remained to show the actual place of the murder, and its guardian priest, the custos martyrum, displayed the rusty sword of Richard le Breton. Next, descending the flight of steps on the right, they were led into the dark crypt, where more priests received them, and presented the saint's skull encased in silver to be kissed, and other relics, including the famous girdle and hair shirt. 
This Caput Tomai was one of the chief stations at which offerings were made, and the altar on which it lay, mentioned in the Black Prince's will as the altar where the head is, marked the site of the original grave where the saint was buried by the frightened monks on the day after the murder. The tomb stood in the eastern chapel of Ernulf's crypt, under the beautiful pointed arches afterwards raised by that great architect William the Englishman, whom Gervais describes as small in body, but in workmanship skilled and honest. Soon it acquired a miraculous virtue, and the fame of the cures and wonders wrought there rang throughout the world. It was the scene of Henry II's penance, and during the next fifty years it remained the central object of interest to the crowds of pilgrims who came from all parts of Christendom. Coeur de Lyon, accompanied by William, King of Scotland, knelt here on his way to the Crusades to implore the martyr's blessing on his arms. Many were the Crusaders from all parts of France and England who came thither on the same errand. King John and his wife Isabella, who were crowned at Canterbury Cathedral by Archbishop Hubert Walter at Easter 1201, offered their coronation canopies at this tomb, and vast sums of money were yearly offered here until 1220, when the body of St. Thomas was translated, in the presence of the young King Henry III, to the new shrine at Trinity Chapel, immediately above the tomb in the crypt. In that year, the offerings at the tomb, at the altar of the sword's point, and at the new shrine, reached the enormous amount of £1,071, a sum equal to more than £20,000 of money at the present time. After this, the offerings at the original tomb in the crypt diminished in number and value, but the altar and relics of the Caput Tomai remained an object of deep reverence until the Reformation. From the dark vaults of the subterranean church, the pilgrims were led up the steps to the north aisle of the choir. Here, the great mass of relics, including St. George's arm and no less than 400 skulls, jaws, teeth, hands and other bones, were displayed in gold, silver, or ivory caskets, and pilgrims were allowed a glimpse of the magnificent vessels and ornaments stored up under the high altar. "'All the gold of Midas and Croesus,' exclaims Erasmus, "'would have been nothing by the side of these treasures.' And he confesses that he sighed to think he kept no such relics at home, and has to beg the saint's pardon for this very unholy emotion. The golden candlesticks and silken vestments of the sacristy in St. Andrew's Tower, and the saint's pallium, which no ordinary pilgrims might see, were also shown to Erasmus and Collet, who brought with them a letter of introduction from Archbishop Wareham. After duly inspecting these precious objects, they mounted the long flight of steps behind the high altar leading into Trinity Chapel, a continual ascent, church, as it were, piled upon church, which seems to have greatly heightened the impression produced upon the awe-struck pilgrims. Now, at last, they stood within the holiest of holies. 
There, before their eyes, was the goal of all their journeyings, the object of their deepest devotion, the shrine which held the body of the blessed martyr. The shrine itself, covered by a painted canopy of wood, rested on stone arches in the centre of the floor, exactly under the gilded crescent which is still to be seen in the cathedral roof. On the right was the richly carved and canopied monument of Henry the Fourth and his queen, Joan of Navarre, with its elaborate effigies of the royal pair wearing their crowns and robes of state. On the left, the tomb of Edward, the Black Prince. He had willed to sleep before the altar of Our Lady of the Undercroft, in the chapel adorned by his own gifts, but the people who had loved him so well would not allow their hero to remain buried out of sight in the dark crypt. So they brought him to rest by the great saint's shrine, where all men could see his effigy of gilded bronze as he lay there, clad in armour, his sword by his side, his hands clasped in prayer, and read the pathetic lines which tell of his departed glories, and bid the passing stranger pray for his soul. Pour Dieu, priez au Celestien Roy, que merci est de l'âme de moi. His was the first tomb that was ever raised in the sacred precincts devoted to the martyr's shrine, and to this day it remains there, unhurt by the hand of time or the more cruel violence of man. Up the worn stone steps, which still bear the marks left by thousands of feet and knees, the pilgrims climbed, murmuring words of prayer or chanting the popular Latin hymns to St. Thomas. Tu per Thomae sanguinem quem pro te impendit, fac nos Christe scandere quo Thomas ascendit. Here the prior himself received them, and showed them first the corona, or crown, of Becket's head, preserved in a golden likeness of St. Thomas's face, ornamented with pearls and precious gems, which had been presented by Henry V. Then, at a given sign, the wooden canopy was drawn up by ropes, and the shrine itself, embossed with gold and glittering with countless jewels that flashed and sparkled with light, was revealed to the eyes of the pilgrims. They all fell upon their knees and worshipped, while the prior, with his white wand, pointed out the ballast rubies and diamonds, the sapphires and emeralds which adorned the shrine, and told the names of the royal persons by whom these gifts had been presented. There were rings and brooches and chains without end, golden and silver statues offered by kings and queens, the crown of Scotland brought back by Edward I after his victory over John Balliol, and the regal of France, that superb ruby presented at the tomb in the crypt by Louis the Seventh, which shone like fire and was as costly as a king's ransom. Full of awe and wonder, the spectators gazed with admiring eyes on these treasures, 
which for beauty and splendour were beyond all they had ever dreamt, until the canopy slowly descended, and the shrine was once more hidden from their sight. Full of awe and wonder, the spectators gazed with admiring eyes on these treasures, which for beauty and splendour were beyond all they had ever dreamt until the canopy slowly descended, and the shrine was once more hidden from their sight. Then they went their way, some to visit the convent buildings, the noble chapter house with its gabled roof and stained windows, and the glazed walk of the cloisters, glowing with bright colours and decorated with heraldic devices of benefactors to Christ's church, painted on the bosses of the vaulting. Others made themselves fresh and gay, and went out to see the city, the knight and his son to look at the walls, the prioress and the wife of Bath to walk in the herbery of the inn. But for Erasmus and his rather inconvenient companion, there was still a sight in store, only reserved for very exalted personages, or such as had friends at court. Prior Goldstone, a gentle and well-bred man, not altogether ignorant, as Erasmus found, of the Scottian theology, himself took them back into the crypt, and lanterns were brought to illumine the dark vaults. By their light the prior led the way into the church of Our Lady of the Undercroft, which was divided from the rest of the crypt by strong iron railings. Here the two friends saw what Erasmus might well call a display of more than royal splendour. For here, surrounded by exquisitely carved stonework screens and a beautiful reredos with delicate traceries and mouldings, richly coloured and gilt, was the altar of Our Lady, adorned with precious ornaments and twinkling with hundreds of silver lamps. There, in the central niche, under a crocketed and pinnacled canopy, stood the famous silver image of the Blessed Virgin herself. And there was the jewelled tabernacle and frontal, with its picture of the Assumption worked in gold, and the chalice and cruets in the form of angels, and the great silver candelabra with which the Black Prince had enriched his favourite shrine. There, too, were the costly gifts and jewels presented by his son, Richard II, the gold brooches offered yearly by Edward I, the white silk vestments, diapered with a vine pattern of blue, bequeathed by the Black Prince, and countless other rare and precious things, which filled Erasmus with envy and wonder. But then, as ill luck would have it, the prior conducted his guests into the sacristy, where on bended knees he opened a black leathern chest, out of which he produced a parcel of ragged handkerchiefs, with which St. Thomas used to wipe his face. This was too much for Dean Collett's patience, already sorely tried as it had been by what he had seen and heard. When the gentle prior offered him one of the filthy rags as a present, he shrank back in evident disgust, and turned up his nose with an expression of contempt, which filled Erasmus with shame and terror. Fortunately, the prior was a man of sense and courtesy, 
so he appeared to take no notice, and after giving his guests a cup of wine, politely bade them farewell. Before this, Collard had alarmed his more timid friend by the bold way in which he had dared to question the priest who guarded the gilded head. He had even gone so far as to remark aloud that the saint who was so charitable in his lifetime would surely be better pleased if some trifling part of these riches were spent in relieving the poor and destitute. Upon which the monk had glared at him with gorgon eyes, and Erasmus felt sure would have turned them out of the church forthwith had it not been for Archbishop Wareham's letter. But in these words of the honest dean we see a foreboding of the new and critical spirit that was fast undermining the old beliefs. Already the days of pilgrimages were numbered, and the glories of St. Thomas were on the wane. A few more years, and the monks who guarded his treasures were rudely disturbed. The glorious shrine was stripped of its priceless gems. The wrought gold and precious jewels were borne away in two enormous chests, such as six or seven men could barely lift. The wonderful ruby which flashed fire in the darkness was set in a ring and worn by King Harry himself on his thumb. Finally, to complete the sacrilege, the relics of the saint were publicly burnt, and his ashes scattered to the winds. Only the broken pavement and the marks of the pilgrim's knees in the stone floor were left to show future generations this spot, hallowed by the prayers and the worship of past ages. End of chapter 14 End of The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury by Julia Cartwright